Good morning, Grace. Open your Bibles today to Luke chapter 4. We're continuing our little mini-series called Glorious Mess, How God Redeems a Broken World. And we'll be in Luke 4 and then a bunch of other passages. And that's what happens when you do a topical sermon. You kind of hop around. So uh, the verses will be on the screen. But we'll read an extensive part of Luke chapter 4. And before we begin, let's pray one more time. Father, the theme this morning has been joy. We were singing about unspeakable joy. We read about joy from your word as we lit the Advent candle. And so now as we come to your word, Father, we pray with the psalmist out of Psalm 43 who said, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me to your holy hill, to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And so, Father, we declare this morning that you are our exceeding joy. Would you send out the light and truth of the gospel from your word this morning and help us to see that Jesus is better than everything, and then may he receive glory for it. Do it now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite poems by Leonard Cohen is called, I Heard of a Man. I was introduced to Leonard Cohen in college and memorized this poem well over 20 plus years ago. Uh, I love Leonard Cohen. I love his poetry. I love his music. Uh, Most of you know him, but you don't know it's him, but the song Hallelujah that has kind of become popular that everybody sings now. They don't know that Leonard Cohen wrote it and he sings it the best. So I don't care who else you listen to. If you haven't heard Leonard Cohen's version, you haven't heard it. That's just a side note. That wasn't even in my notes. Okay. This poem by Leonard Cohen titled, I Heard of a Man, is about this man that if he only speaks a woman's name, she would leave her lover, leave her boyfriend, and go with this man. This man speaks so well that he can mesmerize a woman just with his voice, just by speaking her name. So the poem is about this man who can just simply speak a woman's name and she would fall for him. The narrator of the poem says this to his girlfriend or lover in the poem. He says, if I am dumb beside your body while silence blossoms like tumors on our lips, it is because I hear a man climb the stairs and clear his throat outside the door. So he's saying that if he gets quiet and can't speak when he's with his girl, it's because he hears this man climbing the stairs outside and clearing his throat outside the door as if this man were going to say his girlfriend's name and then he's going to lose her because she's going to run to him in the same way how many of us have been swept away by the lies and accusations of satan how many of us have heard the devil clear his throat outside the door of our hearts and start accusing us and reminding us of our sins, and then we suddenly run to him and listen to him. We all do it all the time. 
We're always falling for his lies. So how do we deal with the man, the devil, Satan, who climbs the stairs and clears his throat outside the door of our hearts? That's what we'll talk about today. Now, I know that I said last week that this week we would look at how the incarnation of Jesus should affect our human bodies, but I decided to go a different route today. I was actually trying to decide, should I preach that sermon or preach this other one that I had been working on and kind of been marinating in my heart over the last month, so I decided to go this other route. So if you're bummed that I'm not talking about how Jesus' incarnation should affect our bodies, let me summarize that sermon by quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, where he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because Jesus paid for your sins, Christian, and purchased you out of the slave market of sin, which we saw a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, which he did all of that in the incarnation. Because of that, then you should glorify God with your body. So there you go. The incarnation of Jesus gives value to our bodies because we belong to Jesus now. Therefore, we should glorify God with our bodies. But what about when we don't glorify God with our bodies? Because the reality is that though we are commanded to glorify God with our bodies, the sad reality is that we don't always do this. We don't always do this and we don't do it a lot. We sin all the time. Every day. So, how do we keep going along in the Christian life knowing that we don't always glorify God, knowing that we sin all the time? How do we keep going when Satan is clearing his throat outside the door of our hearts and he begins telling us what horrible sinners we are? How do we keep going when we know that what Satan says is true about us, that we don't always glorify God? Well, let me give you some gospel hope today because I want to help you fight despair and sorrow this week. Because how often do we fail to do what we know we should do? How often do we blow it and then we feel condemnation? How often do we get buried under the weight of shame and guilt? If you're like me, probably every day. Every day, I hear the voices that tell me I'm a sorry excuse for a disciple, I'm a lousy husband, I'm a lazy dad, and I'm an unloving pastor. Every day that chorus sings its song to me. So if you're like me, you need some gospel hope today. The truth is we fail every day. We truly are a Romans 7 people. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my human body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You and I are always doing the sin that we hate. And because you and I are always doing the sins that we hate, you, like me, probably hear the voice in your head every day that says you are condemned, that says you have failed, that you should not have done what you did. So I suspect that shame and guilt and condemnation show up on the doorstep of your heart every single day. They do mine. They ring the doorbell of my heart every day. So I want to help you fight that today. I want to help you run them off the front porch of your heart. So what do you do when you blow it? When you sin? When you totally act like the big sinner that you are? How do you carry on when the devil pulls out a detailed catalog of your sins? What do you do when the devil reads you the inventory of your sin? What do you do when you're tempted to despair because what he says is true? When Satan tempts you to despair, and here's our big idea today, clear your throat and say, it is written, it is finished. Clear your throat and say, it is written in God's word, it is finished. When you blow it and the devil starts laying on you layer after layer of condemnation, you have to learn to use the word of God to extinguish his fiery darts. You have to learn to say, it is written. You have to rehearse what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. You have to clear your throat and tell the devil, it is written, it is finished. It is written in God's word that Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, and that is my hope. The greatest comeback ever to the accusations of the devil is this. It is written, it is finished. That's the greatest comeback to the devil. And when Jesus was tempted throughout his life, his comeback was always, it is written. The whole reason that Jesus could say, it is finished on the cross at the end of his life is because throughout his life, he was always saying, it is written. Throughout his entire life, Jesus was always quoting scripture, always quoting the Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament well. And it was always on his lips as the weapon that he used as he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. And this is exactly how you and I resist temptation. With the word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why we must know this book. That's why we must read this book. We resist temptation just like Jesus as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, it is written. 
But let's talk a moment about Jesus living as the God-man and resisting temptation in his incarnation. What were those temptations like? How extensive were his temptations? How difficult were his temptations? The answer, Jesus faced the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised by the devil. So this was no walk in the park for Jesus in his incarnation. In fact, Satan knew what it took to make someone a sinner. How many sins does it take to make someone a sinner? Just one. Satan knew that. It was just one sin by Adam that changed this whole world, that made this world broken. One sin by Adam made you a sinner, made me a sinner. His sin made us sinners. One sin by Adam messed you up. One sin by Adam messed me up. One sin by Adam made this world broken. One sin by Adam turned us into a Romans 3 people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Satan knew that it only took one sin to keep Jesus from fulfilling his father's mission to redeem a broken world and to save his elect people. And because it only took one sin, do you think Satan was casual in his approach? Do you think Satan thought, well, it only takes one sin to trip up Jesus. Just one time he slips up and the whole plan is off to redeem this broken world. The whole plan of redemption is shot by one sin. I've, I've got time. There's no rush here. No hurry. I can take it easy on Jesus for a while. No need to rush into this temptation thing. I've got time to derail his plan. Did the fact that it would only take one sin to trip up Jesus bring comfort to Satan? No. It made him vigorously tempt and attack Jesus. His attacks on Jesus were non-stop. And that's why the devil rallied the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations against the eternal Son of God. And how did Jesus emerge from the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised by the devil? Obviously, he was victorious. He defeated each one time and time and time and time and time again. And he did it by saying, it is written. So look in your Bibles now at Luke chapter 4. We'll read the temptation narrative. Luke chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Let's stop right there. We know from the other gospel accounts that the temptation narrative followed Jesus' baptism. And that's why Luke says here that Jesus returned from the Jordan River. Now let me explain what Jesus is doing here. He was baptized not because he was a sinner, not because he needed cleansing. What Jesus is doing here is he went into the water. And what he's doing is he is retracing the nation of Israel's steps. Because what happened when Israel fled from Pharaoh and Egypt? They crossed the Red Sea. They went into the river, if you will, meaning they crossed the river. 
They crossed on a dry riverbed, as Exodus says, but they were nonetheless in the river. And then where did Moses lead Israel as they came out of the riverbed? They went into the desert, into the wilderness. And what did they do? They started complaining about food, about bread, about manna. So what Jesus is doing here in Luke 4 and in the other gospel accounts is retracing Israel's steps. Where Israel failed as a nation, Jesus would succeed. So Jesus goes into the waters in baptism and he comes out and is empowered by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face another round of intense temptation. And Jesus succeeded everywhere that Israel failed. For 40 years, Israel roamed the wilderness while Jesus spent 40 days there. Israel complained about bread in the wilderness, and Jesus resisted turning rocks into bread. Jesus succeeded where the nation of Israel failed to obey the law of God. He obeyed the law of God where Israel failed. So back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, or it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Every single time that Jesus was tempted, he came back with, it is written. In fact, you may have noticed in the narrative there that Satan sometimes will say, it is written, if he can get you to stumble. He will use the word of God. He will pervert the word of God in order to get you to sin. That's how perverse he is. He will use the holy word of God to try to trip you up, to get you to sin, to justify your sin. That's what he's doing here with Jesus. But every time Jesus was tempted, he came back with these words, it is written. This is the greatest comeback to sin. This is the greatest comeback to temptation. This is the greatest comeback to the devil. It is written. It is written in God's word. It is written. Every single time that Jesus faced the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised by the devil, he replied with these words, it is written. He never once gave in to sin. He faced throughout his entire life 
Not just on the weekend, not a certain day of the week. He faced throughout his entire life the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised by the devil. And Jesus never once gave in. Now think about your struggle with sin. Do you ever get tired of fighting sin? Do you ever get weak and you just want to give up and give in to it? I do. See, we truly are a Roman 7 people. We want to do good, but we do bad. We hate the bad and we want to do good, but we choose the bad. That's because we are sinners even after we become Christians. As Martin Luther said in the Latin language, we are simul justice et peccator, which means simul at the same time. Simultaneously, we are justice, we are righteous, we are just. Et means and, and peccator means sinner. We are sinners even though we have been declared righteous by God, even though we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We are a Romans 7 people. We still struggle with sin. But do you ever give in to sin knowing that at least there is some relief in that you don't have to fight it anymore for a while? Do you ever give in to sin knowing at least there's some relief that you don't have to fight it just for a little while? You get a break. I do. Isn't that one of the reasons that we give in to sin? Sometimes we give in to sin just because we get tired of resisting and we get tired of fighting. Do you ever get tired of resisting temptation and just give in? Sure you do, and so do I. Think about Jesus now. He never once gave in. He never once had the experience of relief whereby he gave in to sin so that he would not have to fight it anymore. It was war for Jesus, 24-7, nonstop battling the forces of evil, and he resisted by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the word of God. Jesus spent his entire life saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. So picture Jesus as an eight-year-old boy playing baseball and on the field continually saying, it is written, it is written. And when you think of Jesus as an eight-year-old boy playing baseball, understand that he did not always hit a home run. It wasn't like every time Jesus got up to the plate that he knocked it out of the park. He struck out. He was a human being like us. He got hit in the shoulder by a wild pitch and got to walk to first base. And I imagine if Jesus was a pitcher, then he probably threw a wild pitch, not intentionally, but probably threw a wild pitch. It must have had his share of wild pitches because he was a human being just like us. So picture Jesus as an eight-year-old boy playing baseball, resisting temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit and always saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. Picture Jesus as an eight-year-old boy always obeying the law of God, always fulfilling the law of God for us on the baseball field day after day after day. 
And then picture Jesus as a 16-year-old boy resisting temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit and always saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. Always obeying the law of God for us as a 16-year-old. Always fulfilling the law of God for us as a 16-year-old, day after day after day. And then picture Jesus as a 26-year-old young man working in his father's shop, resisting temptation, saying no to temptation. Every day, picture Jesus doing some pretty mundane work in his father's shop, working away at making tables as a carpenter, all the while resisting temptation, all the while obeying the law of God for us. Picture Jesus day after day as a 26-year-old young man, Always obeying the law of God for us and always saying over and over and over again, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he did all that because his mission in the incarnation was to come and redeem this broken world. To come as the second Adam, to obey all of God's law for sinners and rebels like us. The first Adam The first human being created gave in to sin and rebelled against God. And because he sinned and because Adam is our first parent, then we are all conceived and born into this world as sinners and rebels. And that's why Jesus came to redeem us. As Paul says in Romans 5, and he contrasts the one sin of Adam that wrecked the entire human race, he contrasts that with the entire life of Jesus, 33 years of saying no to sin, saying it is written. Paul contrasts one sin with an entire life of obedience. In Romans chapter 5, In verse 15, it says this, but the free gift, salvation, imputed righteousness from God, the free gift is not like the trespass, is not like Adam's sin. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam's disobedience ruined us. Jesus' obedience redeemed us. Adam's disobedience ruined us and wrecked us and Jesus' obedience redeemed us and justified us so that we're declared righteous in God's eyes, blameless. And that's why when Satan tempts you to despair because of your sin, you need to clear your throat and say, it is written, it is finished. 
Because Jesus spent his entire life obeying the law of God in order to justify sinners like you and me. He spent his entire life as an eight-year-old boy, as a 16-year-old teenager, as a 26-year-old young man, obeying the law of God in order to justify us, in order to justify sinners like us. And when Jesus got to the end of his life on the cross, he could say, it is finished, Precisely because he said it is written his entire life. He spent his whole life saying, It is written, 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 so that he could say, One time on the cross, it is finished. Numerous times throughout his life, Jesus said, It is written, so that he could say, It is finished. One time. Numerous times Jesus said, it is written, so that he could say, it is finished. One time, so that we could say millions of times over and over and over again over the course of our lives so that we could say, it is written, it is finished. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where we have all failed. He came to obey the law for us so that we could have a righteousness that enables us to stand in God's presence. John records the last moments of Jesus' life in his gospel in John 19. It says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I love how human Jesus is in his last moments. He's thirsty. He needs a drink of water. But I think that he got the drink of sour wine that they offered him not simply because he was thirsty, which he was, and not simply to fulfill scripture, which John says it happened to fulfill scripture, but I think there's another reason why Jesus needed a drink right before he died. I think Jesus wanted to make sure his throat was cleared so that he could utter those beautiful last words. It is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai, it means to finish, to accomplish, to fulfill. I think Jesus got a drink in his last moments because he wanted to make sure that everyone heard, to make sure there was no confusion, to make sure he was clear when he said these words, it is finished the good news of the gospel grace is that it is finished now. Jesus cleared his throat on the cross so that there would be no doubt as to what he said. It is finished. I have obeyed the law of God my entire life in order to justify sinners. 
And so the law of God says to us, get to work. But the gospel says, it is finished. God's eternal moral law, which gets summed up in the Ten Commandments, God's eternal moral law demands perfection from every single human being. God's eternal moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, demands perfection from you. Demands that you be without sin. So the law clears its throat and says to us, be perfect. It demands perfection. It demands a sinless life. And I don't think it's by accident that there are 10 commandments and we have 10 fingers. I think God wanted to give us a perpetual reminder in our bodies of the things that we use every day for everything He wanted to give us a perpetual reminder of his moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. We have ten fingers that should serve as a reminder to us that God is holy, that he is perfect, that his law, the Ten Commandments, demand perfection from us. They should remind us that he is perfect. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, it should remind us that we fall short And that we need a redeemer, a savior, someone to obey the law for us. So God's law is good because it exposes us as sinners and shows us our need for Jesus. But we can never be good enough, can we? We could never obey God's law perfectly. So the law comes along and clears its throat and says, get to work being perfect. Get to work being good. But the gospel comes along and clears its throat and says, it is finished. Jesus paid it all. Though both of these words, law and gospel, are from God, the gospel always has the final word. Always. The law can demand righteousness from every single one of us, but God's law cannot produce that righteousness in us. The law shows us what we ought to be doing, but it can't produce the desire to do it. Because, you know, here's a practical application. What happens when you see a sign that says wet paint? Does it make you want to stay away from it? No, what does it make you want to do? You want to touch it. Is it really wet? That's what God's law does to us, Paul says in in Romans 7. It's good, but it can't give us the power to obey it. Righteousness is the free gift of God to us in Jesus Christ. So first, we are sinners. We must start there. We started this sermon there by saying, we are sinners, we're messed up. But we end with this, Christ is our Savior. We are sinners, but Jesus is our Savior. That's law and gospel. The gospel is the good news, the declaration, the announcement that Jesus paid it all and that it is finished. And that's why the veil in the temple leading into the Holy of Holies was torn in two when Jesus died. And we sang it in one of the songs. The veil was torn in two. Jesus made a way for sinners to come into God's presence. That means that working for God's approval is done. That means you can't earn God's love through your performance. 
You can't earn points with God by keeping the law. God redeems this broken world through the perfect obedience of his son, Jesus. That's how God redeems a broken world, through Jesus' performance for us and not what we do for him. But how often do we forget that? We try to make our way back to God. I'll be good enough. One of my friends on Twitter recently said this, Grace tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom so the gospel could be preached. Performancism tries to sew it back up. The veil in the temple was there to separate God from sinners. And when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was ripped in half. And what we try to do is come along and think, through my performance, I'm gonna earn God's favor. So I'm gonna sew the veil back up through my obedience and my goodness, what I do for God. Don't try to sew the veil back up, Grace. It is finished. You are accepted, Christian, because of Jesus' performance for you. His entire life of obeying the law and never sinning. That's why you have acceptance in God's presence, not your performance for him. Jesus lived the life that you could never live, a life of perfection that God demands from you, a life of perfection that his law demands from you, a life of sinlessness that God's law demands from you. Jesus lived that life for you, and Jesus died the death that God's law The curse that God's law has pronounced over you because you're born a sinner and a rebel. And Jesus took the curse of the law, your punishment on the cross for you. It is finished, grace. And when you forget this and you try to be good enough and try to earn God's favor, try to get him to love you, Oh, I'm going to impress him because January 1's coming up and I'm going to do my quiet times every day for three months and he's going to give me a sticker. When you forget that and make it about you and what you do for God and then when you blow it because you only make it three days into the new year and then you miss a quiet time and you feel guilty and you feel shame and condemnation and when you sin and you hear the devil's accusations, when you hear the devil clear his throat and start warming up his voice, Start warming up your voice. When Satan tempts you to despair, clear your throat and say, it is written, it is finished. Jesus paid it all, Grace. Yes, we are a Romans 7 people. We sinned. We do the things that we don't want to do, just like Paul says in Romans 7. But guess what? The good news of the gospel is that Romans 8 comes after Romans 7. And what does Romans 8, 1 say? We read it earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans 7 is us. Romans 7 is the apostle Paul taking a picture, taking a selfie with all of us, all the while Romans 8 is photobombing us in the background. Romans 7 is the Apostle Paul taking out his iPhone and taking a selfie with all of us. All the while, Romans 8 is photobombing us in the background and saying, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who are in union with Christ. 
So when the devil starts assaulting you and telling you that you are a sinner and you stink and Christians don't do the things that you do, you know what you say? You say, there is now no condemnation. When the devil or anybody tells you that Christians don't do those things that you do, tell them this. Well, they do now. Someone tells me, Christians don't do the things you do. Well, they do now, because I'm a Christian. (laughs) Jesus paid it all for us. He obeyed the law for us. So when the devil starts clearing his throat and telling you things like this, you haven't read your Bible today, and you call yourself a Christian? You haven't prayed. You gossiped. You slandered your neighbor. You lusted again. You call yourself a Christian? When he says that to you, tell him, it is finished. Tell him that Jesus made a way for you to God through his works, not yours. The greatest comeback ever to the devil is this. It is written, it is finished. Get used to saying it, Christian. Say it all the time. Say it all the time. It is written. It is finished. It is written. It is finished. Clear your throat so that you can hear the good news coming out of your own mouth, so that you can hear the good news that you speak to yourself. Say it all the time. It is written. It is finished. Say it all the time, so much so that if you're ever in the hospital and they have you drugged up after a surgery and you start talking and you don't know you're talking, Say it all the time so that in that moment, the nurses and doctors will hear you mumbling, it is written, it is finished, it is written, it is finished, it is written, it is finished. That is the greatest comeback ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love and for Jesus and for the word of God that he used to live a perfect life for us and thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowered your son to live a perfect life for us. Thank you that your son went to the cross. He knew no sin and yet you made him to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness, so that we could be declared righteous in your eyes. That is good news to my heart this morning because I sin all the time. Thank you, Father, that it is finished. May we be a church who mumbles that all the time. It is written, it is finished. It is written, it is finished. All because your son became the God-man in the incarnation, became a baby in a manger to live a perfect life for us to redeem this broken world. All glory to him. All glory to him in the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.